In the summer of 1992, movie fans across the globe highly anticipated the follow-up to one of the biggest box office juggernauts of all time with Tim Burton's Batman. Little did they know that Burton's new vision of the character and the world he inhabits would be vastly different and a somewhat bizarre take on the Cape Crusader. A dark, twisted maze. A wild carnival ride through the depths of Gotham City. A gothic fairy tale that deals more with duality than traditional comic book fare. The likes of which we had never seen before or since. This is Batman Returns. Merry Christmas, film fans, to each and Happy every one of you out there. Yes, yes, yes. This is our very special surprise episode of Batman Returns, a retrospective, maybe a little early. I mean, this is not an anniversary by any means, but we just thought, you know what? Let's just do whatever we want. Let's just give them a big old package full of treats out of our big fat sack of goodies. I'm excited about this. I mean... Anyone that listens to this show already, already knows. And by the end of this episode, you will definitely know this is one of my favorite movies and we have ever yet to sit down and dissect it in full detail on the epic film, guys. So, Loisos, it's about to happen. How do you feel about it? <laughs> I'm so excited because we've been talking about Batman Returns a lot recently. I, I, I showed my boyfriend's Batman Returns for the first time recently. You saw it at Alamo Draft House. We finally got to show it. It took a pandemic. For us to I begged Batman for Returns years. I begged for <laughs> years for you to show it, and then I came and watched it in an empty theater. It looked great, sounded great, um, but we also actually saw it at the Mahoning Drive-In Theater this summer for their Burton double feature on 35 millimeter. The second time we went to go to Mahoning to see both Batman '89 and Batman Returns, and both times, dude, both times it rained on us. 25 minutes into the movie. And I'm like, dude, I can't even I can't even see Ms. Michelle Pfeiffer. I can't even I can't even make out anything that's going on. So we have to leave. So the movie's cursed. It is cursed at Mahoning. I'm sorry. We love you, Mahoning Drive-In Theater. You're the most special, magical place on the planet. But, you know, it's been a great year for this movie. And I feel like more and more fans every year are talking about this movie. And there's going to be a very strong subject we're going to discuss when it comes to whether it is or is not a Christmas movie. But before we go any further, I just have to give a shout out to our sponsor. This episode is fueled by our sponsor, Evil Tea by the Evil Tea Company. Steeped in darkness, loy sauce, Evil Tea brings a sharp variety of tea flavors featuring robust and creative blends for those tea addicts out there. Use promo code EPICFILMGUYS for 15% off your first order. Evil Tea is amazing. I've already hyped it on this show numerous times. Unfortunately, I can't hype my favorite blend of theirs, Sleigh Ride, because it did sell out, and we hyped it a few episodes ago, but make sure to go over to EvilTeaCompany.com and find the right blend for you. But all of that aside, Loisos, we're here to talk about Batman, and not just Batman, but Batman Returns. The follow-up to Tim Burton's gargantuan success that was 
Batman 89. Warner Brothers immediately wanted a sequel. Mr. Tim Burton was like, no, I'm not sure I want to do that immediately. No, I'm not sure I want to return to the Batman. No, I've already shot my wad on that character. And then Warner Brothers literally put a blank check in front of him and said, make the movie whatever the fuck you want. Just make sure Batman's in it. And then he's like, okay, maybe there's something here I can do with these characters. And that gave us the opening to what helped Sam Hamm in the initial script and Tim Burton come up with the initial concept for Batman Returns, which led into something completely different, which we're going to dissect on this show. So the background, there it is. Um, you can imagine, Lois Ross, Tim Burton being hesitant to returning to this because of experience with John Peters on the first film on, you know, how, you know, he was a up, young up and coming director and what it was like to work with all these different people. So many hands on the cookie jar. I mean, you can imagine that from his perspective, being this small time animator and jumping to superstardom with that movie. Absolutely. And Tim Burton has always been wary of sequels ever since ever since Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian was offered to him. Uh, so I, I can definitely see why at first glance he would want to stay away from the project, but he was given more creative control this time around. And this movie gives you a real insight on just how demented the mind of Tim Burton is because he was given more creative control this time around, and this was the result, a film that is so unbelievably fucked up. Yeah, I mean... The cool thing about this is that when he sat down with Daniel Waters, who took over for the script from Sam Hamm, when they sat down at that table and said, what do we want to do with this movie? The first thing that Tim Burton said to Waters was, forget the first movie. And the other thing that they did not consider in the least bit is, what are fans of the first film going to think? What are fans of the comic book going to think? What are the investors of the large corporations that are attached to this movie going to think about it? They just literally made the movie that they wanted to make. And I can remember segue into my childhood memories of the first time seeing this trailer. Obviously, the first Batman is my favorite movie of all time. It is my number one movie. And... This is a time when there was no internet. You could not watch a trailer on your phone. You didn't go on your computer to watch a new trailer. You either saw it in the theaters or you didn't see it at all. And I remember how they actually debuted this trailer. I believe Warner Brothers owned it at the time. It was Entertainment Tonight. And they debuted the trailer on Entertainment Tonight. I remember sitting there. It was like a Tuesday night with my family. We're all about to ready, get ready to go to bed. My parents used to go to bed super early and they showed it. And I was amazed. Was I, it the trailer with the bat with the bat logo covered in snow? Yes. Yes. Amazing. And the first thing my mom said, as soon as it ended, I turned around and looked at her in excitement. She said, you're not seeing that. That looks satanic. <laughs> she literally said that. She's like, that looks like the work of the devil. And I, it, is, I, it is in a way I gotta I gotta be fair and give her some credit because looking back at it now I'm like yeah it it looks really spooky there's like skeleton guys on the street there's you know burning people and during Christmas time it looked pretty weird and vastly different from what we had seen in the first film um and then jump fast forward to the opening of the movie June 19th 1992 I remember it like it was yesterday my dad and I and my mom, went to the Tioga Owego Theater, which I showed you when we went to our friend Spencer and Marissa's wedding. I showed you the theater. It's still there. It's a historic theater. 
we went to a pet store beforehand and I remember this like it was yesterday because we ended up getting a puppy that night. And my mom said, well, I'll take the puppy. We named him freckles. I'll take him home. You guys go see the Batman movie and I'll come pick you up later. That sounds like the best day ever. It was. However, however, me as a young man watching Batman returns within the first five minutes of the movie opening, I was terrified and I'm not even going to lie. This is coming from, a huge horror fan here who loves blood guts and you know, all that crazy stuff. When penguin gets thrown into the water, I was terrified. I grabbed my dad's hand and said, I want to leave. I'm scared. I want to leave. And he grabbed my hand, not in a mean way, but, but very firmly and said, you've been talking about this movie for weeks. You're going to sit there and watch it. (laughs) And thankfully my dad busted my balls and you know, I stayed there and watched it. And I remember walking out of that theater and looking around the historic Owego town and going, this town kind of looks like Gotham city. And my dad being like, it doesn't at all. Let's go home and see the puppy. But that was, I remember seeing the movie in that historic theater. Loisos. Do you remember the first time you saw Tim Burton's Batman returns? Well, I wasn't born when this film came out. So like everything else, we've already (laughs) established this. So I don't have any specific memories attached to like going to see it or the hype around the film when it was gearing up for release. I found the VHS tape of Batman Returns at a local library book sale and I took it home wow. because that was around the time when I was going through the you know the pantheon of superhero movies, uh, what little there was back then, you know, the Christopher Reeve Superman and all of that. And I had already seen Batman 89 and Batman Forever at this point. Uh, I had not yet seen Batman Returns. So this was a special find for me. I took it home. And needless to say, I didn't watch Batman Returns nearly as much as the other Batman films growing up for obvious reasons. Um, and But as an adult, as someone now looking back at it, I, I, I still prefer Batman 89, but there's much about this film to admire. And we're going to be talking about all of that in just a few moments. But Justin, there is this debate that seems to be dredged up every single year. We relitigate it. Is Batman Returns a Christmas movie? And there's still some disagreement about this, but I want to ask you what you think. You're totally correct. The last few years, people have been debating this back and forth, up and down, you know, alongside Die Hard, Gremlins, Lethal Weapon. Let's just get this over with. Batman Returns. The plot of the film is centered around the holiday of Christmas. Batman Returns would not be the same film without the element of Christmas. If you strip those elements away, it is literally not even close to being the same film. It takes place during Christmas time. The movie opens on Christmas when we see the cobble pots ditch poor little Oswald. And when it skips forward to the present day, it's also Christmas. It snows, dude. A lot. It's constantly snowing. You see Christmas lights wreaths and decorations everywhere. The opening scene of the movie, they hold a Christmas tree lighting event where you hear come ye faithful play in the background. And Max Shrek is introduced as Gotham's own Santa Claus as he throws out wrapped Christmas gifts to the excited audience. The red triangle circus gang ambushes the Christmas tree lighting in a giant Christmas present during the attack the tattooed strongman viciously assaults a Santa Claus with a snow sled. I mean, literally, I'm going to keep going here, but are you following me here? Are you on the same page as I am right now? 
Yeah, I mean, there's that famous argument, like, if Christmas isn't the main focal point of the plot, then it's not a Christmas movie. So, in other words, a movie can only be considered a Christmas movie if the main plot cannot happen without it directly relating to the holiday of Christmas. Which I think is horseshit, because by that logic, a movie might not be considered a Christmas movie if you removed all mentions of Christmas in the dialogue, all the Christmas music and imagery, if you disregarded all of that. So in my opinion, a Christmas movie is only a Christmas movie if you want it to be. Um, if there's snow, presents, toys, Christmas trees, Christmas decorations, Christmas lights, mistletoe, constant referring to Christmas within the dialogue, to me, it's a fucking Christmas movie. And that's that's <laughs> the same way I view it. I mean, our three main characters in this film, they're constantly yearning for acceptance. They're filling a void and dealing with, in a lot of ways, family issues, internal issues during the holiday season. That's the centerpiece plot of a lot of Christmas movies. You see Alfred, Michael Goff, actually decorating the Wayne Manor Christmas tree. Lines of dialogue. In the meantime, how about a kiss, Santa Claus? Right before Catwoman electrocutes Max Shrek to death. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie. Elfman's new score for the film. Bells jingling. Large operatic children's choruses. While it's not a happy score, the farthest thing from it actually... Much like his score for Nightmare Before Christmas, which he was working on at the same exact time as Batman Returns, has a Christmas feel to it. I mean... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing about Batman Returns is that it's arguably a perversion of what you would normally consider a Christmas movie. All the things that we just mentioned are present within the film, but they're like twisted or subverted to bring misery and misfortune on its characters and not good cheer. Because most, you mentioned this, but most Christmas movies are about family and being together during the holidays. Batman Returns is a tale of brooding isolation and trauma and violence. And a lot of that may have come from their issues with their families. I mean, we, we, we know that the Penguin is a character, which we'll get into in a little bit here. He's offed by his parents. He's a mutated right. little sewer freak. And they're like, yo, we're going to dangle a little rubber ducky in front of your cage in front of the Christmas tree. When you eat the cat, we're like, nah, fuck it. We can't handle this anymore. You're going into the sewers. We're dumping you. Selena Kyle, her mom's bothering her because she won't come home for Christmas. Something some of us were becoming adults. We have to decide, are we going to stay at home and and create our own life for our holiday season? Or are we going to go back home and relive it? And of course, we know that Bruce Wayne internally is dealing with problems. He's in this huge giant mansion, yet he's feeling so empty and lonely. He has Alfred there at his side. He has no relationship. He, the one that he attempted in the first film, he explains in this movie didn't work, and he's yearning for some kind of connection with somebody. So yeah. all three of these characters are dealing with, again, themes and ideas that are present in so many other Christmas movies. Definitely. All three of our main characters have no family to embrace them. And their ostracization from society makes them bitter and haunted and deeply damaged, something I think Burton can relate to as it's a recurring theme in a lot of his movies. And Batman, of course, copes with his parents' deaths by, you know, becoming a crime-fighting symbol of vengeance, whereas Catwoman, to a lesser extent, but especially the Penguin, who has the cold-blooded plan to kidnap and murder all the firstborn sons of Gotham, are corrupted into villainy. So, you know, so ultimately, it is a Christmas movie. I think it's just a feel-bad Christmas movie. (laughs) This is Tim Burton's perverted vision for Christmas in his own mind. We don't know what Christmas was like when he was a kid. 
from what I've been told and what I've read, he had a great upbringing. He loved his family. His family was very supportive of him. But he's always had that really strange viewpoint on Christmas. I mean, he created the idea and concept for Nightmare Before Christmas in the early 80s when he started working at Disney. So he's always had this strange connection with the macabre and Christmas and wanting to mix them together. So take it as it is. And yes, if you want to argue with me whether or not Batman Returns is a Christmas movie, just stop your attempt. You're wrong. It is. 100% agree. So um, let, let's talk about the macabre nature of this movie. Um, right off the bat, I think the film is infinitely more sinister than its predecessor. In the opening scene, we get a baby locked in a cage, cat murder, attempted baby murder, <laughs> and, a, and a deep dive into a dark sewer, all in the opening two minutes of the movie. Yeah. Uh, uh, resulting in, I'm sure, many a nightmare from the children. Well, see, the now audience. you can understand why, as a young man, I was sitting there in the theater and like, Batman 89 is my favorite movie ever. That I'm like, oh my God, they just threw that kid into the water? What? It's snowing? And he's in a sewer? And spooky music? Oh, wait. I wasn't expecting this. Vastly different from the tone of the first movie. The first movie, while very dark for its time had still a comic booky approach. It still felt a little bit poppy and more like an adventure film, like a phantom of the opera of the eighties, as Tim Burton himself has proclaimed this movie. I can't even find anything else to compare it to that came before it because it is so specifically its own thing. It is so creative. Uh, and again, going back to why I love this movie so much, that is why I love this movie. I mean, he had one movie to make in between the first Batman and this, and he made Edward Scissorhands, another movie that dealt with Christmas a little bit there, um, with a tragic character. But, I mean, looking back at this now, it's insane that this movie even happened because, dude, in the first scene we see Batman come in to rescue Gotham City from the Red Triangle Circus Gang, he legit like burns a motherfucker to death with the Batmobile. Like he murders engulfed several in people. Flames. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing when people bring up the argument about, and, and to be honest, even I've had this argument about Batman versus Superman and the kind of bloodthirsty uh, portrayal of Batman by Ben Affleck in that movie. It has nothing on how psychotic Michael Keaton is. And he, he straight face fucking drives the Batmobile into Gotham and just blows away. Tons of the Red Triangle Circus gang. Let's not forget that before his entrance to save the people from the tree lighting, we see the Red Triangle Circus gang. Horrific characters. Skulls and these people on stilts clowns, with skull yeah. faces and evil clowns with machine guns. Now, you don't see people getting blown away, but you see them terrorizing the crowd of all these people just want to do is enjoy, you know, the season of Christmas and you, you see, see an in, you see an innocent bystander on fire. So dude, you see are these hurt. guys on stilts. They're literally lighting people on fire. And then, of course, Batman comes in straight face and takes them all out. He doesn't give a shit. And that that's the Batman that I love. And when people I mean, I've loved a lot of different interpretations of Batman. Uh, Keaton's being my favorite. I always have to answer the question. Do you care if Batman kills or not? Well, I'm like, well, it d depends on the context of how he's doing it. In this movie, don't care. Batman don't give a fuck. He's just going to do whatever he's going to do. With efficiency. And at least once or twice with a smile on his face. There's that part where he straps explosives to a member of the Triangle Gang. And he pushes him through a manhole to have him explode. <laughs> he literally steals the dynamite from Doug Jones's Thin Clown. 
attaches it to the tattooed strongman, smiles, punches him. He goes into like a little area of a sewer or something and he blows up and he just stands there. Is that Doug Jones? I had no idea. Yeah, the thin clown is Doug Jones. Oh my God. Did I just teach you something during this retrospective? You learn something new every day. Yeah, man. It's craziness. But the nightmare-inducing imagery doesn't end there. I mean, we have the penguin moments after devouring a raw fish, biting off a dude's nose with his sharpened teeth and spraying blood everywhere. Still worse, my nose could be gushing blood. (laughs) (laughs) We have Catwoman making out with Max as she electrocutes him, turning into a charred skeleton. Like, this is horrifying stuff. Yeah, definitely not the likes of which, again, and we're going to get into the controversy of the film, parents taking their kids to see this expected. They didn't think that. Now, again, the first movie was scary to a lot of young kids. It was very dark for its time. It set the bar. It raised the bar in a lot of ways and broke the mold for what this kind of movie could be. We have analyzed that movie to death in other episodes. Check out our 30th anniversary retrospective. But Batman Returns takes it to another level in every possible way. The movie is mean-spirited in ways that you would not expect from a comic book movie. And it's by no means a movie for kids at all. No, and it doesn't even seem to be trying to appeal to kids. In fact, there is that video clip of the kid saying that every single uh, instance of something that would appeal to kids is used against them. And that's very true. Oh, that's right. It, the- it, it was a male critic. I remember it now. It's, it's one of those amazing memes you sent me like a year ago of the kid being like, Batman Returns scared me. Right. And there's many instances of kids being interviewed and, and uh, reacting in horror and confusion <laughs> about this movie. Um, it was, it was Jenny said- Jones. I'm pretty sure it was Jenny Jones. But as you said, it, it it definitely, it is a film filled with just horrifying imagery, but it also has the heroics that you would come to expect in movies like this too. This movie has easily one of the best superhero movie moments ever when you first see Bruce Wayne in the oh, movie. Oh, dude. The build-up to that moment. The build-up to that moment. When I saw it at Alamo Drafthouse two weeks ago, and I sat in that pretty much empty theater, After we see the tattooed strongman literally smash a Santa Claus in the face with a sled (laughs) and Commissioner Gord, you know, pulls in in a cop car on the intercom. What are you waiting for? The signal. And we see Bruce Wayne brooding, Brooding. sitting in this gothic environment, literally with his fist on his chin, sitting there. No other purpose in life. This is the embodiment of Batman. And you hear, Let's hope his neighbors don't notice he has two giant bat signals attached to the top of his mansion. But it shines through the window. And when you see him see the signal, he's, he, he wakes up and he's like stands up in front of the signal and he soaks in the light of the bat signal. It's literally the most heroic, iconic thing. I think it's one of the most iconic, heroic events of any comic book movie of all time. I cried. When I saw it at Alamo Draft House, I, a tear rolled down my. I'm like, <laughs> the best Batman of all time. Argue with me all you want. Still, when you see him stand up like that, what other moment in any other Batman movie gives you that that many chills up your spine? I mean, dude, it's goosebump inducing. Absolutely, and and Michael Keaton, of course, is just as great as ever in the role of Bruce Wayne and Batman. It makes me wish that he were on screen a little bit more often in this movie. Well, I do feel like the movie's a little bit imbalanced. It focuses 
almost exclusively on the villains and and bruce wayne doesn't even talk until 40 minutes into the movie 36 minutes actually oh well excuse me justin i just want to make it very clear because i timed it today when i was re-watching it to prepare for the episode i'm like i i know he shows up to stand up to be like yo i'm gonna go whoop some bad motherfuckers asses but the first time he speaks is 36 minutes into the movie that leads me to say we got to get into the characters I think Batman, I mean, you got to look back to what Keaton has said about the way he approached coming back for this role. Obviously, it took a lot of convincing. The fact that Tim was coming back and really attached to the material gave him insight into why he should return. But he had a really hard time getting back into character for the film. He found himself almost doing an impersonation of himself, which he considered impossible. And after constantly ruling out things that his character from the first film would or wouldn't do he realized he had to just drop it and treat it like it was the first time. And luckily for us, Lois Osses fans, the character was there because there's very little difference between the Batman we see in 89 and in Returns. He he nailed it, but let's face it, he wasn't, this wasn't like the days of a Marvel Universe type of thing where, okay, I'm signed on for three films. I know I'm going to play this character over and over again. He didn't even think he was going to come back or, that the, you know, these kinds of movies didn't have that presentation at that time. You know, even though in, in if you listen to press interviews back in 1989, the press are like, Peters is talking about a trilogy, and, and Keaton just kind of laughs it off like, yeah, haha, whatever. But, I mean, he's on point here. He's 100% on point, and I will actually beg to differ with you on this a little bit. I think even though we see Bruce Wayne a little bit less in this one, I think we see Batman just a little bit more than we did in 89. Now, we know that Tim Burton was more fascinated with the villains. It's an obvious thing. The first film, Jack had carte blanche. He was the moneymaker with that one. He's the reason the movie made money in the first place. There's a reason why he was at the forefront. You play to your strengths. And the second movie, that's the whole reason why Tim came back, is to be able to play with the villains. He, again, said on his own that he shot his wad on the character of Batman. So the reason he came back was he wanted to play with Catwoman, and in the sandbox of what he could possibly do with the Penguin. I think we got to get to that character because the two villains are definitely the most interesting characters in the movie. Definitely. And when you think of the Penguin as he was portrayed in the comics and in the animated series and all of that. Um, or, or, you know, by Burgess Meredith in the 66 show. Absolutely. He's just kind of like this cigar chomping mob boss. Yeah, exactly. And um, so it was pretty radical what they did with the Penguin's origin and storyline in this movie, um, because the Penguin is this almost tragic, like this great tragic villain. We understand him. We understand his plight um, and our understanding of his loss and trauma, in addition to his, you know, completely frightening appearance, make the Penguin equal parts compelling and repulsive. <laughs> you yes. know what I mean? I mean? And that goes down to the performance, the makeup, everything. In a lot of ways, the Penguin, in my viewpoint, is a reflection of Burton's admiration of the classic tragic movie monster that he mentions so much influences early childhood and his love of art, you know, at an early age, Frankenstein-esque, if you will, a little bit. Um, though his plans are cruel and definitely horrific, I mean, you, you somehow at the end of the film feel empathy towards him. He was abandoned by his family for being different. He attempts to fit into society, still can't find his place, and he ends up 
you know, tr- spoiler alert, dying alone alongside the only creatures to truly love him, which are the penguins that raised him. Um, and that scene brings a tear to my eye, and I don't, I don't know. I guess because the film spends so much time making you feel for him. I mean, unfortunately, I, we look back at it now and consider it a, a brilliant performance. Devito went full method when he was on the set. He had a little penguin circus tent that would accompany him from the, the makeup trailer onto the set, so it, for him to stay in character, he was only Oswald, not Danny. But this motherfucker was nominated for a Razzie for his performance in this movie. Can you believe that? Uh, no, I can't really. It, it, it is it is a very hammy performance. He does mug a little bit for the camera, but um, he fully embodies that character, and he's just constantly like sweating and grunting, and and <laughs> you know, he he's having the time of his life certainly. But it's not anywhere near a bad performance. Not not when you get so much empathy from the character. I think Devito does a terrific job. I think he's absolutely brilliant. I mean, you look at the the amazing makeup job that V Neil did, who you know worked on Michael Keaton on Beetlejuice to bring the penguin to life. I just love the idea that Tim Burton in his mind as a director has to find a psychological profile for a character in order for him to put it on screen. He can't, if he can't understand it, if he can't find a reason for that character to exist in this world, then he can't include them. And with the penguin, he totally created something different. Um, I was a young boy. I bought all the toys. I'm sitting here as we record this episode wearing a vintage Batman Returns t-shirt from 1992 because I collect literally everything to do with the movie. But I wish that I was old enough, maybe a young adult at the time, there was no internet, but to hear what comic book fans were talking about. I mean, there's very little uh, information about, you know, how the fans reacted to this interpretation, because obviously they grew up with one version of the Penguin, and that's the only way they saw him. And this is a completely different direction. This is, you know, polar opposite almost of that generic crime boss with a little cigarette hanging out of his mouth. I mean, we don't even see him sitting there with the top hat smoking the cigarette or, you know, doing the Burgess Meredith thing with the monocle. You only see the monocle in one scene. It's a completely different version. So, I mean, hats off, you know, top hat, if you will, to Tim Burton for, I mean, really creating something totally different and unique for the movie. And equally memorable. Yeah, just a little bit of trivia burgess meredith was supposed to appear in the film as the penguin's father which would have been a nice little tribute instead we get a Wee's big adventure reunion a little reunion between Wee and simone simone yeah and, that's uh, right the, Al- the alamo tour guide uh, jan hooks appears later in the film as I, well i think it's hilarious that so many fans did not realize that was them until like way later until like imdb became a thing and stuff when trivia became a thing I mean, as a kid, I didn't know it was Pee Wee Herman. So it's pretty awesome that um, they, they were able to get Pee Wee to, to come in and do that little cameo there. Um, we know that Adam West was offered the cameo to be Thomas Wayne in the first film, but he declined because he said he should be playing Batman. But um, really cool fun fact there. But we got to get to the other main character and my favorite character of this entire movie. Michelle Pfeiffer, Selena Kyle slash Catwoman. We all know that Annette Benning was given the role and got pregnant. And she gave a call to Tim Burton and was like, yo, my belly's full. I got a kid on the way. I can't do this Catwoman thing. I can't fit in that skin tight vinyl and crack that whip. And so a huge search went out in Hollywood where literally every actress from 25 years old to 45 
wanted to play Catwoman. And we know that infamous story loy sauce of Sean Young from Blade Runner, who was cast as Vicky Vale in the first movie. You know the story, don't you? Where she literally went in full cat costume to Warner Brothers, snuck on to Warner Brothers, went into an office where a producer was sitting with Michael Keaton and said, I am Catwoman. And then she got escorted off the set. She even <laughs> did talk shows in costume campaigning for the role, but no, nobody else got it, but none other than the beauty that is Michelle Pfeiffer. I, I, I can't see anyone else in this role. I'm sure Annette Benning would have been a, a fine Catwoman. Interesting choice. I can't choice, imagine. But... Yeah, um, and she would later go on, go on to appear in other Tim Burton films. But Michelle Pfeiffer's performance as Catwoman is just one for the ages. I mean, she is everything the character should be. She is sexy, seductive, almost feral, completely unhinged. Um, she's really quick with the quips, and she's very content and assured in her femininity. I want to say that the death of Selena Kyle and the birth of Catwoman, those are some of my favorite scenes in any movie in history. Yeah, Selena's transformation into Catwoman is by far my favorite scene and one of the most impressive pieces of a physical performance by an actor in any Batman movie ever made. Her trip into that pit of darkness after being brought back to life by stray cats. Dude, it's fucking chilling. And that piece of music that Danny Elfman, which we're going to talk about, about in a little bit here came up with for that scene that's one of my favorite movie moments of all time and we can't forget i mean her catwoman is iconic she's brilliant and beautiful and seductive in that role but her selena kyle is meek and quiet and quirky and a little bit weird and she's playing two different characters in this movie She's playing two different characters, the weird cat lady and the weird cat lady. <laughs> yeah. And then the the weird in the middle cat lady who's not really sure who she should be and what her place is in the world when she's not wearing the cowl and when she's not in the office. Um, I think it's a performance and it's written a certain way where I think a lot of women can relate to it even today. Definitely. The film dives into that whole aspect of duality and that's why she and bruce wayne connect they don't know each other's alter egos but they know that each of them has something inside them that's broken um and a different side to them and that's why i think their relationship works so well that's why i think they have better chemistry in my opinion than michael keaton and kim basinger did in the first movie and i also think that scene of them at the party where they meet and they dance the way that that scene's constructed too is another one of my favorite moments of the movie. Oh yeah. That's something that uh, you could take a whole day to analyze with, you know, did, I'm not sure if you noticed this or not, but as I rewatched that scene today, I know there's been a lot of dissection on all of the different masks that all the different people are wearing at the costume party. But did you ever happen to notice that a character walks right by Selena Kyle wearing a classic, the flash helmet with the wings on it. I never no, noticed I that notice until that. today. Now I know there's going to be fans like, I can't believe you've watched this movie a hundred times and never noticed it. But I just, for the first time today realized that it's literally the flash's helmet. The original version of the flash walks behind her. So uh, that, that, that's definitely one of my favorite scenes. And I mean, I'd love to dig in deep on each one of these characters. I think each one of these characters could actually present a full episode to themselves so many amazing moments, but the other character that we have to get to here is Max Shrek played by Christopher Walken. Strangely enough, 
Walken was actually one of Tim Burton's first choices to play Batman back when he was casting the movie in 1988 alongside of his first choice for the Joker, John Lithgow. I only recently heard this information. Yes, I know I live in the Batman world, but this was new information to me. And Burton has openly admitted that in real life, he's actually scared of Christopher Walken. And that's why he wanted to cast him. Um, I find it funny because when you try to find information about, you know, Walken be attached to Batman Returns, he did Letterman or Leno, one of the two. And when he was doing press for that, he did like one interview. And when asked about his character of Max Shrek, he didn't know exactly how to describe it. He was just like, oh, just a generic bad guy. He's rarely spoken about his role in the Batman universe at all, but he's obviously named after the German actor that portrayed Nosferatu in the classic 1922 silent film. He's wearing that awesome pinstripe suit. And many people have said he is the Scrooge, if you will, of this movie, the corrupt robber baron businessman. Um, he also, Lois Sauce, sports one of the best spray tans and most <laughs> terrible wigs in the history of cinema. Yes. Does he need to be in this movie, though? He was originally supposed to be the Penguin's long-lost brother, which was going to be this connection to Oswald Cobblepot when he brought him you know, into the public realm and the whole mayor thing. I, does he need to be in this movie? Well, also, initially, a lot of his lines were originally belonging to Two-Face, or Harvey Dent, who became Two-Face at the end of the movie. Uh, that was reworked and rewritten. But I thought that was interesting. You know, when Catwoman kisses him with the with the taser what, was she was supposed, supposed to, fry to turn off him into two face. face yeah now see i've heard that but i've also heard people say that daniel waters has said that's not true so it's hard mm. to know if it is or not that's a very interesting way to view it that'd be awesome actually because it makes total sense for her to electrocute half of his face at the end of the movie then in the third movie then we have billy d williams as two-face apparently williams opted out of being in batman returns there's no specific information behind that but it's weird to introduce so many characters in the first movie and not bring them back for returns. So Max Shrek kind of fills a void, if you will. But yeah, I, I think and I'll... I think I don't think Christopher Walken gives the character enough credit because I think, well, first of all, I think Max Shrek is absolutely necessary to the story because the movie is about masks and 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 people who uh, wear costumes and the duality of that. But Max Shrek proves that you don't need a cowl or a costume to be a villain. He has so much influence that he manipulates the media and politics for his own diabolical ends. And it also introduces a theme of capitalism and greed being a more defining villainous trait uh, than the circumstances to which you're born. So, um, I mean, he's also a murderer. Let's let's just get that straight. I mean, his old partner, Fred Atkins, uh, to which the Penguin produces his Hey, remember hand. me? I'm Fred's hand! No doubt inspiring an eruption of screams in the theater from small children. Um, so, yeah, I think he's a fascinating character, and Walken plays him extremely well in that kind of quirky Christopher Walken way. Did you think the spray tan and the awful white wig was necessary? I think it was more than necessary. <laughs> imperative I mean, I mean even and i have to mention this in the 4k ultra hd version of the movie you can see how much eyeliner they put on christopher walken he literally doesn't even look like christopher walken at all fine with it more than fine with it which leads us to talking about the costumes and makeup in the movie i mean we gotta jump right forward here with batman because though he resembles the version we saw in 89 that we love so much returns is a much sharper 
more sculpted and armored suit. It looks a little bit more art deco-y. Um, absolutely gorgeous. Once again, designed by the amazing Bob Ringwood and sculpted by Steve Yang, who literally made the suit look like a fucking Lamborghini, dude. It's like a work of art. Um, and it's argued literally on the daily by Batman fans that it is still the best on-screen bat suit of all time. Now, while it is in my top two saucy, my love of the roughness of the 89 suit will always make it my number one. Is the return suit your favorite bat suit? My poor little brain doesn't notice differences between the, the oh, suits, especially when they're my so minute. God, they're Sorry. not minute at all. The cowl is so to sharp you they're not and sculpted, and the chest is so much different. How how many times have I showed you my action figures? Have have you not paid attention when I bring you over and say, "Look at the chest, look at the legs"? Yes, I've seen your dolls, Justin. They ain't fucking dolls. <laughs> All right, they're action figures. <laughs> oh, God, look what you just did there. I'm going to break a blood vessel in my brain. The costumes are incredible. I mean, um, the, the whole look of the film. I mean, Burton was given more creative control, so everything is much more stylized than even the first film. Uh, and I love the stitched together, like BDSM ensemble that Michelle Pfeiffer had to be vacuum sealed into vacuum sealed um, and they had to like put a lacquer like liquefy her every single time they'd put her on screen poor thing but she rocks it she looks great um and that is in such sharp contrast to the penguin who is this extremely grotesque character and they obviously drew inspiration from movie monsters of the silent era particularly lon cheney in the lost film london after midnight uh, with the sunken in eyes the stringy hair uh, the sharpened teeth, like the hunched over posture, the top hat, everything is kind of an homage to that character. Um, so it, it's remarkably stylized. And I, I, I love the look of the movie so, so much. Yeah. And I mean, we have to thank the great Bo Welch, who also worked with Tim Burton on Edward Scissorhands. Uh, he took over production design duties for Anton First, who was an English production designer who won an Academy Award uh, for his view of Gotham City on the first film, he unfortunately tragically took his own life by jumping off a parking garage in November of 1991. Uh, it, it's so fucking tragic to me that someone so talented, someone so creative, and someone with so much of an, a, a sense of beauty uh, would it be able to do that to themselves. But um, there's not much information on whether or not he was even offered back to come back to do the sequel or anything like that. No one's ever mentioned that. I've just read that he wasn't involved. He wasn't interested and just random, you know, anecdotes and stuff like that. But, um, so he actually killed himself while they were making this movie. So, uh, Bo Welch stepped in and what we're given here, um, is something vastly different when they went from the more, retro futuristic and dirty art deco style of the first film to this extremely cold and very crowded very oppressive germanic gothic expressionism um it's like everything is stuck together there's like what looks like little new york city bodegas smushed in between these huge gothic cathedrals um with these gigantic imposing statuesque figures in the middle of gotham square uh it's again coming up into this point in the movie, when you look at other movies, nothing else looked like this 
at that point. Yeah, uh, when when something is described as Burton-esque, this is what they're talking about. This is exactly it. You have stripes and spirals and wonky architecture. It's all here. And I really want to give a shout out to the film's spectacular indoor sets that they created on the backlot of Warner Brothers. In fact, wasn't most of Warner Brothers' backlot taken up by sets for Batman Returns? <laughs> That's correct, Loisos. This was actually the biggest inside set that was ever created on the Warner Brothers lot for any other movie. So they actually went huge on this thing. They knew that Batman was their biggest cash cow up until that point. I mean, the first Batman broke world records. And we're going to get into the records that Batman Returns broke because it did break some records. Um, but yeah, the, the sets were vast and huge. Apparently, there was only one scene that was shot outside. Do you know what scene that was? I don't, Justin. It's the scene where Selena Kyle is driving from Wayne Manor as she's trying to put on her Catwoman costume in the car. Everything else was actually shot inside the sound stages on the Warner Brothers lot. Yeah, I mean, you have Max Shrek's penthouse office, the expanded Batcave, you have the Penguin's subterranean lair underneath the Gotham Zoo. So many memorable sets in this movie, and they all look outstanding. Yeah, they do. And I mean, you got to look at some of the individual sets, like Selena's apartment, this super claustrophobic, very old school New York City, very homely pink with a steel beam built into it. Uh, Do they sell that neon sign, the hello there neon sign? And can you turn off the sign partially so it says hell here? I've seen fans have created their own version of that in their own apartments, but that was a very interesting creative choice. I love it. It doesn't seem to make sense to anyone's apartment. Like, hey, I have this really terrible, shitty apartment in the middle of Gotham, but it has this awesome neon sign in there. And I'm, it says hello there. <laughs> it just needs to be there. I don't know if it was there uh, specifically to kind of boost the quirkiness of how Selena Kyle was. Because obviously she was kind of a square, big, thick glasses. She's wearing these pants suits that are big and bulky. She's not very sexy. Um and then obviously when her transformation occurs into the Catwoman, she smashes it so it's hell here. Now, I don't give a fuck, honestly, the reason why it's there, but it gives us one of the best scenes of the movie and some of the best cinematography. When she transforms, she's like, I don't know about you, Miss Kitty, but I feel so much yummier. And she like puts her arms up and she's in full cat costume in front of the hell here with all the cats in front of the set. I mean, again... One of the criticisms that critics had, which we have to get to when we talk about the response this movie received, but the art direction of this movie, the visual, which Burton is known for being so amazing at, is there in spades. I think if you had to put a number on it, it's probably the most visually exciting Batman movie ever. And you have the juxtaposition between the bright lights at Gotham at Christmas with the shadowy gloom of the sewers below. Easily the boldest and most visually sumptuous batman movie and i'd even go so far as to say comic book movie ever made well we have to also get into penguin's lair with the production design of this huge abandoned but beautiful polar aquarium which is a real set they built on the warner's lot really flooded with water that real penguins could swim in imagine that they would never do that today that's absolutely insane to think about and it's so tall and they had to keep the entire set of this movie set at a certain temperature so the real penguins that they brought on the set could be comfortable because certain penguins, like the emperor penguins, the bigger ones, they had to be 
specifically at a certain temperature or they couldn't survive. I mean, the amount of effort that went into making this movie is... These, uh, these days, they just get CGI penguins. They're the CGI them fucking birds. <laughs> they ain't real. And they even created animatronic penguins for the penguins that they Stan couldn't Stan Winston, real. baby. Yeah. Stan Winston. Um, the illustrious Stan Winston Studios. Wh- whose work on this movie is impeccable. Uh, the animatronic penguins. His whole viewpoint on it was, I want to make sure the penguins we create can blend in with the real ones so that you can't tell the difference. Now, in 1992, as a kid, on VHS, I'm like, nah, they're all the same. Watching them now, 4K Ultra HD, nope, that's some guys in some suits just leading Penguin down to the water, man. And you can still see the sliding board that Danny DeVito is laying on. To, oh, come on. Come on. <laughs> to put him in the water. Yeah, you notice a lot of <laughs> stuff like that with uh, Blu-ray and 4K Ultra HD uh, in this movie, but... It's still a damn handsome-looking movie. Oh, no, I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous. Like I said, it's still the most visually stunning Batman movie. And you, you, you can't... It's hard to argue that Christopher Nolan didn't take note. And I hate the fact that I have to bring this up. I know a lot of my Burton Batman fan friends will get mad anytime you bring up the name Nolan, but you got to admit that he was influenced by what he saw in these first two Burton Batman movies because... He literally rewrote the script on how to portray Batman. He created it. You know, this is what this character can look like on screen. This is what he can look like in real life. And I still think to this day that we haven't gotten anywhere near it. I mean, Nolan's take was very real and gritty uh, and, you know, real, real areas, real cities. And then, of course, we know with the new version we're getting from Matt Reeves, it's going to be another real world take. And Snyder, you know, he loves his green screen. We'll leave all that aside. But um, the, the visuals in this movie in particular have yet to be matched, I feel like, with Gotham City and the way these characters are portrayed. And the movie sounds just as good as it looks because we have Danny Elfman returning to do the score. And this score is remarkable it incorporates this creepy organ music and as you mentioned the children's choir singing in minor key it's an appropriately deeper and darker tone to the music for a deeper and darker movie there was no prince pop tie-in album for this movie instead we have Susie and the banshees singing face to face which is amazing love that fucking song so much but yeah a decidedly different sound for batman justin right oh 100 way more gothic Way more operatic, if you could believe that, because the first Batman score is super operatic. But here, as I noted earlier on in the discussion here, he was doing Nightmare Before Christmas. He took a break in the middle of Nightmare Before Christmas because they had written all the songs for that movie first before they started shooting it. So that that way they could get the movie rolling because they had no script on Nightmare Before Christmas. And then in the middle of it, they're like, okay, well, we have Batman Returns to do. And the reason that Tim Burton did not direct Nightmare Before Christmas is because he had already gotten the big fat paycheck from Warner Brothers to do Batman Returns. So he was overseeing both films at the same time, as was Danny Elfman. And Elfman had said in many interviews, if I was not allowed to do something completely different with the score for Batman Returns, I would have not done it. And it's quite apparent when you listen to the score, a lot of fans prefer it to 89. Now, obviously, 89 score is my favorite of all time, uh, my personal preference, but... There's no denying this is also in my top 10. I mean, it's a gothic overture. It's it's so haunting and 
dark and also it takes you into a fantasy land, the fantasy land of Tim Burton. I think he built himself up. You can see where he progressed from the first Batman. Then he went and did Dick Tracy for Warren Beatty. Then he went and did Dark Man for Sam Raimi. Then he went and did Edward Scissorhands, which is definitely the precursor to the kind of style and feel that we hear here with the children's choir and how deep it gets. I think in a lot of ways, this is Danny Elfman's masterpiece. You're absolutely right. I mean, one of my favorite bits of music ever is that cat suite, that Catwoman theme that plays. And um, yeah, e- easily one of Elfman's finest works. And based on his illustrious career, that's saying a lot. I mean, you have to look at the fact that in the first movie, he had two themes to write for Batman and Joker. In this case, he had to write two completely brand new themes for these two villains. And they're both very different, very specific. I think one of my favorite themes in this movie is other than cat suite, which is my favorite of his new score is the cemetery. It's definitely monster movie-esque. Let's make no mistake here. Um, it's spooky. This this score is very spooky. A lot of times when I was younger, I'd put it on around Halloween because it was so haunting. It had this ghostly-like feel to it. Um, but all the original Batman themes are there, and it also has some very strong heroic themes. It keeps that intact. So Elfman is 100% on point with this, this score at least. Um, Let's not talk about what he did later on with Batman themes and movies that didn't belong and things that he should not have done. Damn it. It's not you. It's sacrilegious. You should never have put your Batman theme in a fucking Joss Whedon Justice League movie. What the fuck is wrong Justin, with you? Justin. <laughs> sorry. I had to calm down. I, I had to say it. I'm sorry. Justin, is there anything in Batman Returns that doesn't work for you? Um. Well, I mean, there are some plot holes in the film. Obviously, uh, apparently it is discussed in the novelization, but how the fuck does Penguin randomly find the blueprints to the Batmobile? <laughs> Detailed blueprints. We're going to disassemble this Batmobile and turn it into an H-bomb on wheels. Dude, literally, do you think Batman was dumb enough to be like, I'm going to write out these blueprints and just leave them on the table here? I mean... I don't know. It, it's a huge plot hole for me, but the wooden movie wouldn't work without it, obviously. Um, but they're detailed enough for them to find this, create this little device. And obviously Penguin must have some really strong engineers on his team to create this little circular ball thing that his team of carnies <laughs> yeah, disassociates the, the bat computer and the Batmobile to, so Penguin can, you know, fully control it. But I mean, Again, as a kid, I'm not like, I don't care. I'm like, oh, cool, Penguin, he's a bad guy. He can do anything. It's another moment where you're like, that could be in the 1960s Batman series. Uh, what, what, else could be in the, what else could be in the Batman 1966 series, Justin? Um, well, Penguin unleashing hundreds of bats on Gotham City to attack the attendees of the second attempt at a tree lighting. Where did he get the bats? Did he train them? Did he put them in a giant cage and release them all at the same time and train them? And just the imagery of the penguins with rockets strapped to their backs. It's so silly. Well, that and there literally being no police presence when penguins just his whole army just engages on Gotham City. Again, this is another thing that happened in the first movie. When the parade occurred for the 200th anniversary gala, it's like, yeah, where's the cops, dude? Seriously, do they just go? We're not going to mess with this. Um, also, well, Batman's pretty well established at this point, so the cops are pretty ineffectual, I well, think. 
we have to i have to engage you on this though and i don't even think you were prepared for this so i want to put you on the spot catwoman having nine lives is she supernatural well that is an element that's introduced because the cats seem to literally breathe life into her and she almost acts like a zombie initially she i, I Arguably, she is a zombie. She is. She's walking dead, bro. She's like pale white. Her eyes are dead. She's playing it that way. So that's how I take it. I think I think we're just meant to look at it more in a thematic sense. She's fully embraced the cat side of her. Um, I have no idea. I just kind of go with it, like most things in this movie. I feel like the whole attempt to frame Batman, that whole subplot is instantly dropped. How cool would it have been for the authorities to kind of go after Batman because they think that he's the reason for all these crimes? That doesn't really happen. So they set it up and it just isn't followed it, through. It, well, it dies quickly in the next scene because Batman recorded all of the bad stuff Penguin said. And I love this meme someone created in one of the Batman groups I'm in. It's like world's greatest detective doesn't know how to hold a compact disc when he holds up the CD and he's holding it on the wrong end and he's like scratching it like it's a record. Ever, 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 ever. You gotta admit, I played this stinking city like a hop from hell. <laughs> it's 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 kind of hilarious. Batman makes a pretty sweet DJ. And also it just speaks to how unrealistic it is because especially in the year 2020, you have politicians saying awful stuff on camera all the time and nothing ever, ever happens to them. So, um... It is regrettable, but that brings the Penguin down pretty much, and then the whole Batman, framing Batman subplots instantly dropped. Well, Loisos, if you got pelted by fucking tomatoes, which, by the way, I mean, do people, I mean, this was like a thing, I I know that Burton loves that old 1930s, 1940s feel to everything. I know people did that back then, but like, do people still like carry tomatoes and fruit and stuff in their pockets? I'm going to pelt this motherfucker. If he says something I don't like, like everyone had tomatoes at this press conference, just in case he said something wrong. It's a comic book movie. It's a, Oh, there, there you go. There's your hashtag. Instead of it's a canon movie, it's a comic book movie. Um, 100% dude. I mean, like, as a kid, none of that stuff bothered me, and it rarely bothers me now, but as we're analyzing it, we have to just pinpoint some of the stuff that doesn't work in the movie because, let's face it, this movie is not trying to be this grounded, realistic, like, serious take on the material. It's literally, like I said in the introduction, a gothic fairy tale with these it's very heightened. creature-esque yeah. characters. I mean, the tagline for this movie, do you remember what it was? The bat, the cat, the penguin? There it is. Burton wanted to present these characters and these animalistic qualities that they presented in the strongest way possible. And the movie, it made lots of money. The budget was $80 million. It made $282 million. Uh, it was the highest opening weekend in 1992 and the highest opening weekend of all time up until that point. The film also set opening weekend records in the United Kingdom And it was the third highest grossing film in America of 1992. Now we know Aladdin was the number one that year. Um, The film was also nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Visual Effects, which also, Lois Oss, I'm not sure if you're aware, showcased some early CGI effects. Mm. And Best Makeup did not win either. Um, But I got to give a huge shout out to Steven Szepski's cinematography, who also did the cinematography on Edward Scissorhands, he truly brought a very strong fairy tale-like quality to the look of the movie. Critics at the time said it looked like it was shot in an inkwell. (laughs) Roger Ebert 
gave the film two stars out of four. I give the film a negative review, and yet I don't think it's a bad movie. It's more misguided, made with giant creativity, but denying us what we more or less deserve from a Batman story. No matter how hard you try, boy sauce, he said, superheroes in film noir don't go together. The very essence of noir is that there are no more heroes. How wrong could he be? That's a complete misunderstanding of the character of Batman. Batman is film noir. He is the detective in the shadows. So I think his whole idea of the Batman character comes from the TV series because, or what he thinks Batman is in the comic books. Also on top of the critical backlash on the film, we had the parental backlash, which we talked about a little bit earlier on the movie where parents criticize Batman returns for its violence and sexual references, which we didn't really get that deep into (laughs) how sexual the movie is. Lots of really creepy, weird innuendo, like the penguin being a, horn dog i guess he hasn't had sex his entire life so he's a little bit uh, does he even have a penis and raring to go i'm i imagine he does i mean how can you not get feel a little something when you see michelle pfeiffer in the catwoman suit just the pussy i've been looking for (laughs) but yeah so so parents really didn't like this movie they felt horrified and when you hear the reaction from daniel waters who wrote the screenplay he went to go see the movie with audiences a lot. I guess Tim Burton didn't like to do that, but when he went to go, his 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 description of the reaction was parents fe- looking like they got punched in the chest and kids shrieking as the movie ended. And it's funny because as Sam Hamm defends the movie, even though it's not his working script that ended up in the movie, the movie was never presented as a family-friendly movie it was warner brothers and the connection that they made to all the huge investors like mcdonald's who pulled their merchandise from the shelves by the way i got all those cups before they pulled it when i was a kid all of them commercials for diet pepsi or whatever everything literally it was them they are the ones the toy companies everyone that presented this movie as this family-friendly thing tim burton never presented it that way and even though Warner Brothers was worried about the project when they were watching what the finished product was going to be, they didn't pull it. They just let it become what it was. And it still made a ton of money. It's still one of the biggest money makers of the year, but it could have been way bigger had it been more lighthearted. And we know where that's going to go. And, mm. that, and that would lead into what became earlier this year, back in June, our retrospective on the 25th anniversary of Joel Schumacher's Batman Forever But, I mean, again, Tim Burton was allowed to have carte blanche with this movie. He made the movie he wanted to make with a screenwriter that made a movie that Tim wanted to put on screen. And it's unapologetic. Part of it, for me at least, is is, is shocking that it's not R-rated in a lot of ways. I mean, we see Catwoman literally kill a mugger in an alleyway in an extremely graphic way violently with blood all over his face and she says tick tack toe and stabs him in the eyes of the you think it's so easy don't you always waiting for some batman to save him like that's r-rated shit i mean you know it's there's so much stuff in this movie that would have led itself to an r rating i've heard no stories loisos if warner brothers had any trouble with the mpa with the rating on this thing but 
man, I would love to, I would love to see the notes they put on this thing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's right on the like, line in big, bold fucking letters. We'll scare children. Not a Batman movie. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the whole the whole film is just not appropriate for children. But I think when I watched it as a younger kid, I felt like I was getting away with something. You can't have you can't have black goo coming out of the penguin's mouth. Why do people want to buy fries if they're seeing black goo coming out of the penguin's mouth? <laughs> you know that that's what investors were saying. It, it is. They terrifying. should have had a toy. They should have had a toy where the like the black goo comes out of his oh, mouth and dude. it's like ketchup and you put it on your fries. Dude, no, just just come up with a new barbecue sauce that's like penguin sauce and it's just black goo dip your fries into that shit motherfucker while you chalk them <laughs> down with your batman fucking cup with the frisbees but again which i still have all of them since i was a kid we ha- we have to talk about before we wrap up here boy sauce a few things that were supposed to be in the movie that didn't make it such as marlon wayans as dick grayson who actually got cast in the movie and paid to be in the movie thank um, god that didn't happen i know well he was led into the movie earlier on and apparently was supposed to be like a street kid working for penguin. And then waters changed it into an auto mechanic that was going to be working on the Batmobile. And then don't like that. Don't like any of that. The studio never said that there was like this requirement that you must have Robin or anything like that. So they wrote it out and Waters said from the get go. And we know from what Burton has said, he doesn't, care about the robin character it makes no sense to his version of the character because this guy wants to remain in the shadows as much as possible he's this dark quiet character that just stands there you know very stoic why would you have this young guy in green booties and a yellow and black cape standing there beside him it didn't make any sense but apparently marlon wayans got a big payout for batman forever because they you know they booted him from the project also Knox. One of my favorite characters from the first movie was supposed to return. Robert Wool. God damn it. Is there a six foot bat in Gotham City? Um, it's for that reason alone that this movie is inferior to the original. That's right. And he was, he, <laughs> but he was only Waters hated the character so much that he was only to be killed off. Apparently, like put on the bat signal and killed off. Oh, how dare they? How disrespectful that would have been to one of the greatest cinematic characters of all time. <laughs> it would be like bringing back Eckhart and then killing him again. We already know he had a heart attack from all the donuts he eats before he even got <laughs> shot by Jack Napier. He was dead. He was going to die two seconds later with that fat fuck. So, I mean, but I love him so much. But in closing, Loy Sauce, I just have to ask you, because there are so many goosebump inducing moments in this movie. Is there that one moment for you as a viewer that gets you so excited and that makes you happy to watch it every single time? Oh, man, it's got to be the ending. When Alfred and Bruce are driving away in the limo, the camera slowly pans up to the towers of Gotham. The snow is slightly falling from the sky. The bat signal suddenly appears. Danny Elfman's music kicks in. Catwoman rises. Not Michelle Pfeiffer, a stand-in, but nonetheless, it just gets me excited. It gets me excited for more Batman, and I wish we could have seen Catwoman appear in another film, but alas, it was not meant to be. There was never a Catwoman film ever made after this. Um, are you sure? <laughs> I'm pretty sure if you search IMDb and you just search Catwoman, a movie pops up. I am not aware of this film. Did Michelle Pfeiffer return to the role? Sid, your mother's no Sharon Stone. Um, yeah, there was a movie 
and I'll be open and authentic about this. I've never watched the Holly Berry Catwoman movie. <laughs> never? Ever. Not even out of, not even out of morbid it. curiosity? Not even. I've seen it on television and skipped past it numerous times. Literally, when it was happening, I knew all about Warner Brothers' plans to reinvigorate the Batman universe. That was what they decided to do. That movie... Superman Returns and Batman Begins were their three movies to to push their new superhero universe at the time. And what the fuck? Seriously? It's not even Selena Kyle. <laughs> um, maybe someday a B-side will happen or something. Maybe we'll do an episode on it. I don't know. It depends on the reaction we get from our listeners, if they want to hear us talk about it or not. This is Batman Returns. I think for me, as far as the film's legacy is concerned... There's so many things I could say, but it's a film that came out of pure creativity. And it was an experiment of filmmaking where the studio fully allowed a filmmaker to have a creative license with an IP with no barriers, no meddling, no focus groups or in any intervention at all. It would be and so it bizarre never happened again <laughs> that it enhanced so much controversy, the likes of which we have not seen occur since in the world of comic book movies. But for me, Loisos, it's not only a piece of 90s nostalgia led by the greatest Batman actor of all time. It's not just a great comic book movie or a good Christmas movie. It's one of the greatest Batman tells ever put to screen. Right you are, Justin. Uh, for my money, it's an icy plunge into gothic psychosexual nihilism, but it still has the trappings of a comic book fantasy. I think it's more psychologically complex than people give it credit for, and it features some of the best performances and art design in superhero movie history. So... That's it. That's yeah, Batman I mean, Returns. There's so much I'd like to dissect on this one. I feel like we could do like a four-hour version of this episode. I got to give credit to David Lee, who did all of the fight work in the first Batman for the most part, but helped Michael Keaton in this one do a lot more of the actual fighting and the stunts. Um, I, I got to give credit to seeing Batman do actual detective work. I mean, I know it's him sitting in the Batcave uh, just on his little shitty bat computer before he eats soup, but he learns the identity of Oswald. I mean, we finally see Bruce Wayne, the millionaire doing business as a public figure with Max Shrek. Uh, you know, we see Batman and commissioner Gordon interacting for the first and only time in the Burton films for all the five seconds. And I love the Batman suit up scene where he walks into his closet where he has like a hundred bat suits and he walks out as heroic as possible. You also see Bruce Wayne repairing the Batmobile all on his own. There's so many things that comic book fans that love the character of Batman that forget about when they watch this movie, the amount of effort that did go into trying to create a, a true vision of Batman in the Burton world. And for me, at least it's one of my favorites. It's one I'll watch every single year. And I think it's one of the greatest comic book movies of all time. So if this is your first time listening, if this is your thousandth time listening, we love you so, so much. We thank you for listening to the Epic Film Guys podcast and supporting us. Loisos, if they're new to the show, tell them where they can find us. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes. And we ask uh, if you enjoy listening to this episode, you drop us a five-star review on iTunes. It really, really does help us out, and we appreciate it. You can also find us on social media at Epic Film Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And uh, more DC Comics talk next week as we'll be doing a feature review of Wonder Woman. 1984 which shot all right near where we live yeah it was like right down the street 
I should have been in that damn movie. See, my <laughs> my cred on Creed 2 obviously got me nowhere, Loisos. I need to get more credits under my belt, but they didn't want anything <laughs> to do with me. They're like, this motherfucker has green hair and shit, but, you know, what are you going to do? It is what it is, but I can't wait to talk about that one. Hopefully, I actually get the opportunity to see that in a theater. Maybe I'll hop into Alamo Draft House and see it with, like, two other random bystanders. Can't wait to see it. And there's plenty more Epic Film Guys content on the way for you guys, but... Just keep in mind, it is the holiday season, so we just want to say happy holidays to whatever holiday you celebrate, and Merry Christmas. And, well, come what may, Merry Christmas, Loisos. Merry Christmas, Justin. Goodwill toward men and women. <laughs>